This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is October 3rd, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is uh, John Mullen, and I started Hofstra Radio in February of 2005. So this is my 17th year here. Okay. And uh, what titles or positions have you had with the radio station? Uh, I was the operations manager of WRHU up until about a month ago when I became the uh, general manager of WRHU. Well, congratulations are in order, I'm sure. And uh, how's it going so far? It's going great. We've got a lot of energized students and things are going really well. That's great to hear. I guess let's let's start at the beginning of your uh, Hofstra Radio experience. What was it that first brought you to Hofstra Radio? Okay. So in 2005, I was trying to decide whether I wanted to take another job in commercial radio. Uh, I saw an ad in higheredjobs.com for WRHU operations manager. So I read the ad and I said, wow, this looks really interesting. And I knew Hofstra had a great radio station. So I spoke to Bruce Avery and I came down and I walked into what was then Dempster Hall, and I met all these wonderful young people, and I saw the energy and passion that they had for radio and specifically WRHU, and I said to myself, I think this could be a really great place to work and we could do some special stuff, and that's kind of what happened. Very cool. Let's go back a little bit further, because this is usually the question that we ask for people who start their careers at Hofstra Radio, but but you had a career in radio well before you came to Hofstra. So could we go all the way back, and what was it that first brought you to radio, and what was your start like? In 1978, there was a television show on CBS called WKRP in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And when I was in junior high school, I used to watch the show, and I used to say, you know, that looks like a really interesting career path. And I always wanted to be Andy Travis. I mean, the guy had great hair. Mm -hmm. And he was this passionate program director. So my high school had a radio station. It was a community radio station called WKWZ at Syosset High School. And I began to volunteer there from 1981 to 84. I did newscasts. I did a jazz show, stuff like that. Nothing too serious. I still hadn't really committed to a career path. And then I did college radio at WCWP at LIU Post for four years, which was a community radio station. Used to do talk shows. The issue du jour back then was the Shoreham Power Plant, whether or not to build it, operate it. So we did countless shows about that. It was very interesting. And then I worked for a gentleman by the name of Bill Ayers and produced his syndicated show On This Rock on WCKG in Chicago and RIF in Detroit. I had an internship at WBAB with Dennis Daniels doing production. And then I moved over to WNEWFM and I interned with Sal DeLeo and Tom Couch in production. The guy who gave me my first break was Quincy McCoy, the program director of WNEWAM, who took me under his wing and mentored me and let me sit in his office. Quincy had an open door policy. So any time during the day, the sales manager would walk in, the promotion director would walk in, the talent would walk in. We had the New York football giants. We had the then New Jersey Nets. We had Notre Dame football and basketball. We had talk shows. We had big band shows. So it was a cavalcade of chaos. But I got to learn a lot. And the people at NEWAM let me do everything. They sent me when I was 20 years old down to Arbitron to sort through diaries with Peg Kelly, the general manager of WYNY, hmm. and Michael Malley, the PD of YNY, and a guy named Steve Blatter, who was the music director of YNY, who's now like a big shot at Sirius. I think he's a VP of programming. So 
I did all that when I was about 20, 21 years old, 22. I moved over to promotions at PLJ for a short time. Then I became the research supervisor of Hot 97, which was a dance station that transitioned into America's first major market, 24 hours, seven day a week hip hop station. Went to work at WBLS FM. Uh, I was the acting program director there for a year. I was the assistant PD and the research director there for about three years. Then I went back to Hot 97, was the research director there for a while. Then MS Communications purchased a jazz station called WQCD-FM in New York. Mm -hmm. I became the program director of that station in 98, and I stayed there until 2004. I was also the operations manager of the sister station, WRKS 98.7 KISS FM. Worked with a lot of celebrities. Isaac Hayes was our morning man at KISS FM. Worked with uh, Grandmaster Flash, Frankie Crocker. I also worked with Mayor Ed Koch when I was at NEW and Dan Ingram. Dan Ingram was our uh, voiceover guy at NEW, which was really cool because I used to write copy and Dan Ingram would come in to the voice booth and he'd record what I wrote, which was super cool. I also taught at MCNY in New York City. I taught media management and that was a lot of fun. You know, that's kind of what I did before I came to Hofstra. Wow. That's that's quite a ride. And and it sounds like you had uh, a lot of fun along the way and you met and worked with some very interesting people. But again, I want to go back to that beginning, whether it was at the, at the high school station or, or when you decided to go to college and say, you know, what was it about radio? I mean, other than Andy Travis's hair, what was it about <laughs> radio that was really so attractive to you? I really enjoy radio production above all else. And I fell in love with that in high school and especially in college. I like the idea that I would create a commercial or an underwriting or a song parody or a comedy bit. I'd create it from nothing. You take nothing but what's in your mind and using the tools of radio, all the tools in radio, which are sound effects, music, voice, sometimes silence is a tool. You use all these different tools and you create theater of the mind and now you've made something. So you know, I always loved it when I used to write promos on the different stations in New York City and I'd be driving in the car and I'd hear the promo that I wrote or that I produced. To me, it was the ability to have something to show that you created something and there was something tangible that you had. And I just loved the theater of the mind aspect of radio. But not necessarily on air. You like the behind the scenes stuff. I always wanted to be a manager. I always wanted to be a program director. I wanted to be the person that shaped the sound of the station, the creative aspect, what I call creative strategy. Anybody can be creative. If you go on TikTok or YouTube, there's many, many creative people there, but some of them don't have the strategy of what exactly are we doing? Okay, we're creating content now, but how do we monetize it? How do we improve the number of people who are consuming our content? So I enjoyed the science and showmanship. When I interviewed at Hofstra, Bruce Avery said to me, I'd like you to teach so I can see how you teach to the students. Students. So in uh, November of 2004, I taught my very first unofficial class at Hofstra. It's a room of about 20 students. My whole presentation was programming where passion, strategy, and showmanship meet. And I talked about the fact that you need passion because it's not easy creating stuff. You're, you're creating stuff out of nothing. You need strategy and you need showmanship because Radio, television, film is show business. Do you remember the first thing that you did that you heard on the air where you thought, wow, this is, I really like this. This is really effective. This, this is what I definitely want to do. 
I got really good at making promos when I was in college. Mm -hmm. So I had a show called the Saturday Night Request Party. So I made a promo where, you know, this is the sound of someone making a request at other radio stations. And it was just a phone ringing endlessly. The thing that I really was most proud of was, it's actually a really funny story. When I was an intern at WNEWAM in the programming department, program director at the time, he was having a fight with the production director, complaining about promos not getting written. So going home on the train that night, you know, there was no internet. There was no Wi-Fi in 1988. Mm -hmm. So I'm going home on the train. I think I was an intern maybe two weeks at WNEW. And I had a pad of paper and I said, you know, if I was going to write a promo, what would I write? Well, promos are 30 seconds. It's a half minute. And the program director likes mystery novels because he had shared that with me. I'm like, maybe we call them the half minute mysteries, the WNEW half minute mysteries, the case of the smiling New Yorkers. So I write this whole thing about how I'm a detective and I work in Manhattan and New Yorkers were smiling. There was something different. I had to find out what the case was. And of course, it was Mark Simone and the usual suspects three to six on WNEW. So then I decided that I was going to write a series of these promos. Keep in mind, I was never asked to do this. Mm -hmm. Never asked to do this. So I, I write this series of promos where the answer to the mystery was Ted Brown and Nola Roper in the morning show. It was the make-believe ballroom with Les Davis, you know, all these different things. And I go in the next day, I see the program director. I said, you know, you're having a fight with Jim yesterday about uh, creating promos. And he goes, oh, Jim, he's, you know, I don't know why he's still here. And I said, you know, I wrote some promos. He goes, you can't write promos. You're just the intern. So I took the handwritten stuff and I threw him on his desk. His assistant's like, you need to know your place. You're just an intern. I felt horrible. I was like, oh my God, I overstepped bounds. I'm, you know, I'm 20 years old or whatever, 21. And I can't believe this. And about two hours later, he comes up to me and goes, these are great. Nah. And he goes, we're going to produce these. You're in charge of all the promos. Boy, did that piss off all the other coworkers. But um, anyway, long story short, that's how I ended up becoming a copywriter for NEWAM. And then I wrote for the best of William B. Williams, uh, Dan Ingram. Dan was the best because I had listened to Dan growing up, you know, having Dan walk in and Quincy says to me, you know, he's the voice of WNEW and everything you write, he's going to record. That was really cool. He was actually the voice of the Half Minute Mysteries. That was probably the the first thing I was really proud of producing. Wow, that's incredible. That's that's a that's a great story, and the, and the payoff having Dan Ingram do it. That's, I mean, yeah. uh, does it get better than that? I I don't think so. And we brought Dan to Hofstra around 2007, 8, 9, and it was really cool seeing him again. He came here. To, we did a nice uh, radio realities event with like 200 students in Studio A. It was cool. I had no idea that he was a Hofstra grad until I started here, and then I was like, wow, this is great. Wow. Very cool. So, so let's go back to your, uh, coming to Hofstra radio and to interviewing. I mean, you've got this, this varied career. You're working with all these really interesting people in commercial radio. What makes you interested in joining Hofstra radio or non-commercial radio? When I first started in radio, I didn't have a family. I didn't have kids. It was me. If I wanted to work for 16 straight hours at Hot 97 or at WPLJ or at NEW, I could just do it. I didn't report to anybody. I would get up in the morning, I'd take the six-something train out of Huntington, get to work by eight. Then after work, I might go, you know, network or go to a concert or maybe stay in the production studio late making something. But what happened to me was I was very, 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 very blessed and fortunate. And I understand how blessed and fortunate I was to have 16 years in management working with these guys that were legends and gals that were legends. I was very blessed. I worked at the number one rated station in New York. I got to do a lot of special things. 
many special things. And then I decided to start a family with my wife. I had my first daughter in 99, and I was the operations manager of KISS and QCD for four years. Then I had my son. My son was about a year, year old, and I began to change as a human being. And I began to become much more of a nurturer of other people with my daughter and my son. And I said to myself, at that same time, I got a job as an adjunct at Metropolitan College of New York, where I was working with grad students. I became more of a nurturer from 1999 to 2004. I started to morph from, you know, self-centered radio guy to well-rounded human being, nurturer, grower of talent. I also started to see around 2000, 2001, we started to look for talent. Things began to dry up because of syndication, liner card readers, and automation in middle and smaller markets. So around 2000, 2001, there were a lot of small markets and medium markets went to automation, or they went to syndication, or they went to voice tracking. So what happened was the talent pool started to dry up. And so in 2004, I said to myself, I'm becoming a nurturer. I've had this experience teaching at MCNY. I'm, I'm a dad now of two kids. Maybe I'd be good at this. I had no idea if I'd be really good working at a college. I mean, as an adjunct, it's totally different than being totally absorbed working, you know, full time. So, you know, I interviewed at Hofstra and I met the students. I was blown away. I can remember every single one of them. Pete McCarthy, Alina Floresco, Alicia Battinelli, Andrew Falzone. Um, I can go right, Mike Solano. I can go right down. And then recent graduates like Andy Gladding and people like that. Um, I remember every one of those students on the hiring committee, Jeff Cooperich, I'm probably going to forget one or two, of course, but Jamie Morris, uh, there's just a million of them. And I can see them. And I remember what impressed me was the passion and the, the love of broadcasting, radio, TV, creating. They were very creative people. Anthony Chalute for another one. Um, I mean, I can name drop like crazy, but uh, there were just so many of them. And their passion was really intoxicating for wanting to create uh, great content. And so during the interview process, I started to really get a vibe that this was a special place. Hmm. Well, could you talk a little bit more about the interview process and, and what you're sort of asked or, or what you were uh, expected to, to talk about in the interview? So the interview process started at about 9 a.m. and then did it about 5 p.m. So it was the first time I ever went on about an eight-hour interview. So wow. Bruce had said to me, you're going to meet students, you're going to meet alumni, you're going to meet community volunteers, you're going to meet deans, the provost, and the faculty. So I said, okay, great. So I came in and he said, they're going to ask you the same questions in different ways over and over and over again, because it's an artificial stress test. And he was 100% correct. <laughs> so, you know, I listened to RHU a couple times before. So, you know, I came at 9 a.m. I met the dean, Sybil Dogadio. She was wonderful. I met the provost, Herman Berliner. He was great. I met Ed Engels for the first time. I had heard Ed many, many times on the radio, but never met him. Uh, met a bunch of the community volunteers, Fran Spencer and Basha and, and some others. Met the student executive board, which at the time was Andrew Falzone, Alicia Battinelli, um, Jeff Cooperich, and I'm trying to remember, and Alina Florescu. Met them. Met Jamie Morris, the news director, and some other people. I taught the class on passion and strategy and programming and all that stuff. Then we went to lunch. 
We go to lunch and the students were just hammering me. Why the hell do you want to come here? What's wrong with you? Blah, 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 blah. Bruce said I laughed through the whole lunch. We had this great lunch. And um, to me, the lunch was, it was exactly like working at Hot 97 or, or Kiss FM or Smooth Jazz CD 101.9 or like any of those stations. RHU is exactly like those stations. The only difference is the signal size. And instead of being in Manhattan, you're in Hempstead. But other than that, it was the exact same vibe. It felt right. I remember walking into the RHU main office saying, I could work here. I definitely can work here. Wow, that's cool. So aside from the vibe being similar and 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 the 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 competitiveness and the and the fun of it, was it a step down in terms of technology and studios when you first came to Hofstra Radio? What were the sta- what was the station like when you got there? Well, the station when I got there, they played CDs, they played digital audio tapes. One of the first questions I asked Bruce was I said, "You know, you really need an automated playback system." And he said to me, "Well, you know, we're not really sure about that because we want the students to have a reason to come to the studio." I said, "Dude, this is 10-year-old technology. You need to get it here. My goal was to have everybody be at what I call industry standard. And industry standard constantly changes. But fortunately, and this is true to this day, Hofstra, Lawrence Herbert School of Communication, stays at industry standard. And that's where the community volunteers come in because it's so important that they fundraise because then I'm able to buy the new portable recording devices or the new Mackie boards or whatever the new uh, tech of the day is. So when I got there, it took some convincing, but uh, a student by the name of Greg Pacali helped me save money on webcasting, which I then took that budget line and I invested in what's called RCS, Zeta, and G-Selector. Originally, it was Master Control, but now it's called Zeta and G-Selector. Greg Pacali was one of the most impressive students that I met. He was a freshman, and that guy could build anything. He was building things. Mark Wiener from the Alumni Association and Joe DeRosa were tutoring him, and he was building stuff like crazy. So he was very helpful. Mark Wiener, I cannot stress how important Mark Wiener was to the technological advances at Radio Host University from the period of 2005 to 2016. Mark built our digital audio workstation. He built our logger working with Greg Bacali. The digital audio workstation allowed any computer in any studio to log into files for every student member. So a student could be working on a project in Studio North, and then they might have to go into another studio later. They could access that same file, pull it up, and it was like they were in the same studio. And so Mark was incredibly important to the development. And Mark became one of my best friends. I I really miss him to this day. But Mark Wiener really has a special place here, was phenomenally important in the growth of Radio House University, especially executing the live remote broadcast from the three presidential debates at Hofstra. He was such an important resource, mentor, kind to the students, uh, and really one of my best friends. I, I, I loved working with that guy and fun as you can't believe. So the tech at WRHU was sort of at the industry standard when I got here. It can always be better, and it got better. Uh, We got donations. Mike Kluger from the Alumni Association helped us get a donation from WQXR in 2009 from uh, Rodney, the chief engineer. We got a donation from Teddy Rodeberger from BAB, a huge donation from him of equipment. So we've been very blessed to have 
giving alumni, supportive alumni, happy alumni. We're blessed that we're able to obtain technology through fundraising and the generosity of, of Hofstra. Hofstra has been very generous to WRHU in my time frame here. They give us space. They give us resources. It's really a wonderful organization. That sounds fantastic. I, I know so many uh, alums and recent graduates talk about the the quality of the equipment in the studios um, in what I, I still call the new building. It's been around for 30 years. I, in my mind, it's still the new building, but that's a testament, like you said, to the community and, and, the, and the resources uh, of the university. That's, that's fantastic. But I want to go back again for a second. You mentioned earlier the, uh, the passion and strategy lesson. You taught that during the interview. Is that something that you came prepared with or did you just make that up on the spot? When I taught grad school at Metropolitan College of New York, I realized that there's a lot of people who want to be creative, but they don't understand strategy. When you create programming, it's like fishing. My grandfather taught me how to fish and I love fishing. With fishing, you put bait on a hook and you attract fish and then you sell the fish at marketplace. That is broadcasting, that is radio, that is television, that is social media. It's nothing more than fishing. So if I want to catch a snapper, I put a shiner on the hook. And to get the shiner, I put tuna fish from a can onto a burlap bag and the shiners come. Then I take the shiners, I put them on the hook and I catch a snapper, right? So a snapper is a baby bluefish. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to create a radio show, the very first question to ask is not what kind of show I want to make, it's what kind of fish I want to catch. So strategy is everything. You, you need to have strategy before creativity in whatever you do, whether you're manufacturing a car, a radio show, whether you are building houses, who is your target audience, who is your target consumer, and then how do we attract them? How do we engage them? How do we get them to take action? Taking action is vitally important. Very cool. Um, in, in, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm making a bookmark for, for inviting you and, and starting up a podcast about fishing. <laughs> I think you'd do well there. That's, that, was, that, was a, that was a well done story. I appreciate that. Um, so let's go back to you starting at the station once you're hired. One of the questions I usually ask of former students is what was it like when you first got on the air? Were you nervous? What was okay. the first big you know, uh, problem or situation that you faced? So, so for you, what was the first big problem that you faced either as a, as a manager or, or getting stuff on the air? Well, there wasn't really a problem per se. The hurdle or the challenge, as I like to say, in high school, I used to run 110 high hurdles, so I use hurdles as a metaphor a lot. But the hurdle or the challenge du jour really was the fact that the students did not have a computerized automated playback system. We had a television digicart. I remember watching Andrew Sikora and Jamie Morris running, carrying this hard disc, flying into the studio before Newsline, throwing the disc into this machine. And to play the cuts, they had to punch in numbers. They had to like memorize and punch. And I was like, what is this? I have never in my life seen a digicart in a radio station. So... My favorite moment was when Greg Piccoli took the digicard out of the studio and threw it in the dumpster. Um, <laughs> that was probably one of my favorite early memories of WRHU because we were able to put in a computerized audio playback system. First of all, it allowed us to keep everything, which was really important 
especially when I was curating stuff for awards, I could just go back into Selector and say, oh, wow, here's all the news packages. Here's all the newsline shows. Getting the automated playback system done by computers, that was a very important early challenge, really important early challenge. And that was overcome very quickly. I had that up in a couple of months, thank God. And, and the students loved it. They embraced it. The community of volunteers loved it and embraced it. And uh, it was really moved the station forward fast. The second biggest challenge was what Mark Wiener solved, which was a lot of times students would start a project in one studio and then they'd get kicked out because there was a game or there was this or there was that. So Mark Wiener came up with this idea of every computer could connect to this one central drive and you could just move fluidly from studio to studio. That was life-changing. So those two things were probably the most important things we did. Wow, that's very impressive. Um, You mentioned about recording basically everything that went on the air and then that became useful in applying for awards and, and, and such. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Bruce used to say to me, I'd like to be the number one station in the Princeton Review. That's my goal. And I said, you know, that sounds like a really good goal. I would love that too. So one of the steps to do that, I said to myself, well, we need to win some awards along the way. I really want the students to shine. It's the students' opportunity to shine. And I need to figure out a way to curate student stuff. If students are producing stuff and they're putting it on a digital audio tape or on a CD and then the CD disappears, the work is lost forever. So by having Selector, by by having Master Control, which is now called Zeta, by having uh, the digital audio workstations where you could just save things in files, we were able to curate stuff so that when awards came around, like the Associated Press Awards or the Folio Awards or what have you, I was able to go back and listen and say, you know, I think this might work or that might work for this category. And it kind of paid off really well. You know, whenever we win an awards, it's a testament to the students' creativity, to their journalistic skills, to their showmanship, to their professionalism. It's really um, joyful to see students work and students earn these awards. And eventually at Princeton Review, luckily for us, they made us number one a couple of years, which was kind of cool. And so we achieved that goal. I love setting and achieving goals. So that was very important. Very cool. Did you ever do any on-air work? Did you ever get drafted into doing anything on-air? At WRHU, I've been a guest on a number of shows. I've done traffic and weather on Newsline and stuff like that, but it's not really what I want to do here. What I really want to do is help students achieve their dream. Teenage John Mullen and college-age John Mullen had a dream. I would like to be a program director of a radio station. I never in a million years thought it would be in New York City. My dream was to maybe, maybe I'd be good enough to be a program director in upstate New York or in Pennsylvania or Jersey. And so When I was 27, I became the acting program director of WBLS in New York City at 3 Park Avenue, 42nd floor. And I remember staring out the window at the 42nd floor, felt like I was in an airplane. I'm saying, I became a program director, first time program director of a legendary New York City radio station. And then later on, I became the program director of WQCD in New York. And I remember the feeling of setting a goal as a young person and achieving that goal and living your dream. So when I came to Hofstra, I said to myself, how cool would it be if I could help students achieve their dream? I had achieved my dream in my 20s and early 30s. And I said to myself, 
it would be so cool to watch students say, I want to do this, or I want to be a morning show producer. And then the person becomes the morning show producer of the Joe Piscopo show, or I want to become a news anchor and they become a news anchor at New York one, or I want to become a lawyer and they become a lawyer, or I want to become, you know, a sportscaster and they're on news 12 and they're on WFAN. So those are all former students, by the way. So my point is, I think it's really cool when a student has a dream and I just want to be a part of maybe the helping process to help the student achieve the dream, whether it's by me picking up the phone, I'm old, so I know people in New York City and I can pick up the phone and I can say, hey, you know, I got a really good student and maybe you should give him a shot at the position. I, I know way too many people at way too many radio and TV stations, so it's a joy for me to pick up the phone and get somebody maybe get their resume to the top of the pile. I always tell the students, I can get you the interview, but you're going to have to take that interview and you're going to get the job. I'm not getting the job for you. I'm getting you the interview. That's kind of how I see my role at, at RHU for the last 18 years. I still remember the first student I ever mentored. His name was Anthony Shalute, And it was after a fundraising event in February. So I had got hired in early February. This was late February. And we had worked like this 10-hour Irish marathon or and uh, at the end of the marathon, I remember I was just getting ready to leave and, and, and Anthony comes into my office. He goes, can I talk to you about my career for a second? I'm like, all right. So I turn my light back on. I spent like an hour talking to him and, and eventually he got hired at 1010 wins and CBS radio. And then later at WNYE through Mike Kluger. But, uh, I remember sitting with Anthony and I, it was so cool talking to Anthony and he was just such a great young man and still is a great man. And, and it was just so cool mentoring him and, uh, and uh, just being a, pro a part of his process, you know, just a, hopefully a helping process and a helping hand. That's fantastic, being able to, to help people figure out their dreams and, and the, the means to achieve it. That's, that's, that's really, that's great. But I, I'm thinking about the transition from working in commercial radio and whether it's you're on the 42nd floor or you're in Manhattan or somewhere else, and then you come to Hofstra to the radio station. And I imagine it's, it's something of a shift. You talked earlier about the vibe being similar, but did it take you a while to get comfortable at the station? What was that like? Well, the biggest difference between WRHU and a commercial station is a commercial station has one format with one target audience. So at my time at WQCD, it was targeted to 25, 54 year old people who work primarily office workers and stuff like that. They play, we played basically beautiful music for people that we called smooth jazz. So when you work in a commercial station, you're targeting an age group, 18 to 34, 25, 54, you know, 12 to 17 teens. You're targeting a geographic area. You're targeting maybe male or female or a mix. So the biggest difference here is we didn't have one format. So that led me to my famous saying at WRHU, everybody's right and everybody's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever we talk about preemptions, somebody will say, this game needs to be on WRHU-FM. And somebody will say, well, election night needs to be on WRHU-FM. Well, the game is on election night. Well, who's right? And I always say, everybody's right and everybody's wrong. What I mean by that is that this radio station exists to grow talent. So we exist to grow talent and we exist to serve audiences. Those are our two primary purposes. So whether you do election night on WRHU FM and you put the game on the web or you put the game on WRHU FM and election night on the web, it really is glass half full or glass half empty. So one of the things I try to teach the students is when you're in the studio or you're in a meeting, 
don't get into a fight because radio is a team sport and everybody can be right and everybody can be wrong because it's opinion. It's subjective, not objective. We are professional and we act professional and we sort it out together. Together. We use the word us. It's not us versus them. It's us. We're all us. We're all one team. That's how we do things. So when you look at WRHU compared to commercial stations, we operate technologically, staff-wise, are like a commercial station. But unlike a commercial station, we have many, 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 many different shows because we want to grow talent. We want to grow community-minded news people and talk show hosts. So we have shows for that. We want to nurture people who want careers as alternative rock DJs. So we have a show for that. Top 40 DJs, a show for that. Sports, But many people in our sports department want to do TV sports, but they're getting reps doing the radio sports. So, you know, here is a station where if we only wanted to do talk and we only wanted to do community talk shows, we would do that 24 hours, seven days a week. But we want to have landscape, radio landscape for many different majors, many different people with many different interests and many different hopes, wishes, and dreams. So that's what makes WRHU so different than a commercial station. And that's that's the hardest thing to understand. The other thing to understand about WRHU is we are a developmental league team. Like the, the NBA has something called the G League. It's an NBA developmental uh, league where they're developing the skills of the basketball players. Baseball has what they call a minor league system, which helps the baseball players get better, right? Aaron Judge didn't just go from high school to the New York Yankees. He went through a system of different level teams where he learned and he grew. And so WRHU is a developmental place where we develop talent. So it's okay to not be perfect at WRHU. We'd like you to be perfect, but You have the opportunity to get reps here, like at the gym when you're pumping weights, you're doing your reps, right? So you're doing reps doing Newsline. Newsline is not going to be a perfect product, and it shouldn't be. If it's a perfect product, every one of those people should be hired and out of here, and we should have our next group of students practicing. And we want to be good, and we want to be listenable, but we're also growing talent. Now, in New York City radio, it's you know, market number one, it's the the stakes are very high with ratings and revenue and profit. They're not going to spend as much time developing talent as a educational college radio station would. So that's, you have to understand the differences and the nuances. And when you nurture talent, you have to be supportive. When students make a mistake, I don't scream at them. In a commercial world, when somebody makes a mistake, you might scream at them because they're a paid employee that should know better. But as a student, when a student makes a mistake, they're learning. They're learning. So when a student makes a mistake running the board, I want them to be relaxed the next time they run the board. So I'll say to them, hey, don't worry. You can do this. You can do this. Aaron Judge strikes out a hell of a lot, right? He misses that ball many, many times, but then he hits the home run. So every time he strikes out, the manager doesn't scream at him because they want him relaxed for the next at bat. And it's very, very important as you nurture and grow student talent, whether it's an engineering talent, an on-air talent, um, somebody who's writing a script, you know, you say to them, nice try, don't worry, if it's not perfect, you'll figure it out, and you let people grow their style. It's very important to grow style as well. You want them to enjoy the creative process, target an audience, strategy, style, showmanship. Mm. Um, 
In the course of our conversation, you've mentioned a lot of names. Um, who were some of the people who helped you get comfortable uh, in your role as operations manager at WRHU? Well, Bruce Avery was invaluable. He was my mentor. I used to look at the station a lot from the commercial perspective when I first got here, and Bruce taught me about working at a college. What are the goals of the college? How does the radio station interact within a school of communication. Bruce was invaluable. Another thing that I did very early on was I applied for the educational leadership master's program and I took a class, my very first class that I ever took at Hofstra. I am a Hofstra alum, by the way. The very first class I took at Hofstra was with a gentleman by the name of Sean Finelli, and it was a governance class where he taught all about the goals, objective of a university. And once I took that class, Everything Bruce had told me leading up to that class totally clicked. The um, higher ed educational leadership degree that I got from Hofstra in 2012, I, I think it took me about three years or three or four years to take. It really helped me understand the role of WRHU within the School of Communication, within the larger Hofstra community. Serving the community as a broadcast outlet, I understood that from my days working radio in the city, but understanding how the student experience should be. And all those kind of things really crystallized for me between Bruce and Sean Finelli. All of the deans have been very supportive. I've had a number of deans. Mark Lugashevitz, the current dean, is incredibly supportive of WRHU. Evan Kornog, Cliff Jernigan was a dean for a while, and Sybil Degadio. The deans have been very supportive of WRHU. The faculty have been supportive. The alumni have been incredible. I mean, I cannot tell you Every week, every couple of days, I get alumni calling me saying, hey, you know, I've got this opportunity for a student. Uh, hey, I'd really like to hire this student as an intern. What do you think of them? Or, hey, I found this student on LinkedIn from Hofstra, and I see they work at RHU. I mean, it's incredible how passionate and supportive alumni of, of helping current students. It really is wonderful. So it was really heartwarming to see the alumni outreach and the alumni are just so proud. Um, this past week, I was at the New York State Broadcasters Association uh, luncheon and I'm sitting at the table with a uh, a bunch of students, because I like to bring the students to these events because they can network. This uh, woman comes up from Channel 4 to get her award. And you know what? She was a WRHU staff member, Linda Gaudino. And she comes up afterwards and she was just so proud. And she was like, this is my first award at Channel 4. I had to say hi to you and meet the current students. And then this, this wonderful woman from Channel 11 comes up and she says, I'm a Hofstra grad from 1990, such and such. And, and it's just the alumni is so passionate and incredible at Hofstra. It is, it is so heartwarming and appreciated. It really is. Yeah, it is really a wonderful community. And, uh, and it's in my course of having conversations with people, it's been really, uh, fantastic, whether someone's a recent graduate or, or as far back as the 1960s, there's so many commonalities and, and so many great stories and connections, but I want to go back again to your early days at WRHU. And, and usually this is a student question of, you know, someone who's entering radio for the first time and what their expectations are. Um, I want to ask you about your expectations when you were hired as operations manager. What, what were you thinking then? What were you hoping the station would be? And, and what did it become for you? So my expectations were, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I knew the staff was very large and that was very impressive to me. The staff was well over a hundred people when I started here. Now it's over 300, which is crazy. I knew the staff was large. I knew there were many, 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 many shows. And I was trying to 
get a sense of all the different shows, all the different target markets that they were serving, and trying to get a sense of what the students wanted out of the radio station, what the university wanted out of the station, what the school of communication wanted out of the station. How was I going to fit in? What was my role going to be? Was I going to have to be hands-on creating stuff with the students in the studios? Was I going to have to be more of a mentor? I ended up becoming more of a mentor, which was good. And then I was looking for ways to leverage my relationships with my New York contents for the students' benefits. So one of the early things I did was the dean, Susan Murphy, had asked me to create a panel. So I I called a bunch of friends and I had one program director from New York City, one production director from New York City, one talent from New York City, because I was trying to show the students there's more than just talent. So I, I had the marketing director of the CBS cluster, Frank Iametti, come, and I had the production director of KISS FM, Ben Burnside, and I had an air talent, the morning man of KISS FM, Jeff Fox, come. We brought Dan Ingram in. We brought in all these different people, Joel Selkowitz, who is a VP of uh, Sirius XM, and we brought all these people in. I tried to leverage what I could of my relationship of New York City contacts. So when Anthony Shalute, the student that I mentored, my, my first mentee, who I'm really proud of, when he came to me and said, I'm looking for an internship, I called up 1010 Wins and I, I helped get him the interview. He got himself the job and did really well there. My goal was to leverage as much as I could to help the students and help the station grow. I shared Bruce Avery's um, passion for trying to become the best college radio station in the world. And I've worked very, very hard with Bruce, with the Alumni Association, with the students, with the dean's office, faculty to hopefully make that a reality. You know, so we really wanted to make us the the top of the industry for growing young talent. That was was and remains a top priority of me uh, because I'm a naturally competitive person. I played sports growing up. I'm very, 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 very competitive. Being competitive in radio was great because the ratings were a scorecard. So when I worked in New York City radio, the ratings were a scorecard and having a competitive nature, you always wanted to do better. When I came to WRHU, the competitive scorecard was we wanted to be number one in the Princeton Review. And then eventually we entered the Marconi Awards. We won that a couple of times. We're up for another one this year. So I love competing. I also stress to the students that radio, television, film, and even social media are all competitive industries. You must enjoy competition to succeed. You're going to have competition from people on your team, from people on other teams, from other kinds of media. You're in radio, but you're also competing against social media for the listener's time. Are they going to spend time listening to music on YouTube or Spotify, or are they going to listen to your show? So you have to be competitive. So um, my competitive nature, I think, is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. I, I try not to make it uh, too crazy. We try to be competitive. We try to have a nice atmosphere of fun um, at the station. I think it's very important to have fun because we're a volunteer organization. Every one of the 300 people with the exception of the executive board are, are volunteers at the station. It is incredibly important to have fun here. We must laugh when the mics are off and we must have a good time and we must have camaraderie and we must be open to all. I think one of the most really, really wonderful things about WRHU is it's a place that includes everybody. We have had students with eyesight uh, challenges, hearing challenges. We've had students who have um, 
challenges running the board and stuff. And it's still a place where we have so many people working here that we can always find a student to help a student with a slight challenge. And it's really wonderful to be an inclusive place. People come here knowing nobody and they become the station manager. People come here from Rhode Island not knowing anybody and they become the sports director. People come here from all across the country and they mesh and they fit in. They're different personalities. They come from different walks of life. They come with different skill sets and challenges. And yet it all works. And, you know, it's um, it's my job as the station dad, so to speak, to just make sure that everybody is respectful and positive toward one another, which we try really, really hard to do. I think that's definitely a, a long part of the history of Hofstra Radio, whatever generation is that it is uh, a welcoming home to so many people, whether they have a specific ambition for radio or a career, or they just wander in and they say, what is this place? It's people find a home and they're welcome. But I want to go back to something that you said about competition. And, and I, I can think of five or six interviews, at least off the top of my head, where uh, students who were there during your time said, oh, I was really competitive with this other person, or we were in the sports department, we were both trying to be the best play-by-play -play person. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to beat you. It's like, I want to rise to the next highest level I possibly can. And I see you as someone who's doing a good job and I want to do as good or do better. And that's just a, that's such a fine line, I think, to, you know, rather than, oh, I'm going to beat you. It's like, I want to be as good as I can be. And I think it's really interesting what, what you and Bruce and Ed Ingalls and, and others have done to foster that, that healthy competition. You must have competition to breed excellence. Competition breeds excellence. If somebody's an exceptional newsline anchor, somebody else is going to say, I want to be better than that because it's human nature to be competitive in a healthy way. But it's Bruce's job and my job and and Jeff Krause's job, and Ed Ingalls' job, and Pete Silverman, who's our current professional residence, who's outstanding, and Andy Gladding's job, and Joe DeRosa's job, and, and Mark Wiener's job, to nurture an environment where we're not mean-spirited to one another. There's one thing to be competitive. There's another thing to be mean-spirited. You don't want to be mean-spirited, okay? We want to have a, a situation where I'm going to do a better promo than you because it's fun to do a better promo than you. It's like playing tennis, right? I'm playing tennis against somebody. They might beat me, but next time I want to kick their butt. So that's a healthy thing. It's, it's not throwing the racket at them, right? So my point is that we've been very blessed. Bruce had an incredible skill set in mediation. I never saw anybody in my professional career, which is about almost 40 years now, which is frightening, but um, frightening for me. But Bruce was the most incredibly skilled mediator I ever worked with in professional life, whether it was in commercial radio or here, he had incredible mediation skills where when students had an issue with one another, he'd bring them in and he'd sit them down and get them to understand that everybody's a human being. And so I have learned a lot in mediation and conflict resolution from Bruce. We utilize that every day because young people are passionate, they're skilled, but they're young and they may not have experienced things. So when you experience conflict for the first time, you may magnify how important it is and you may work yourself up to think it's more impactful than it really is. So, you know, the job of the mediator is to listen to the student, to understand what the issue is, and then to 
determine along with the student as a collaborative process to determine how we will move forward to resolve the issue. And so, you know, getting healthy, competitive spirit is really good. Competition breeds an excellent product. It really does. Hmm. As you were telling that, it it rang a bell in my head for one of my favorite stories. And I've, I've heard this in a number of different iterations. And, and, and I must ask, uh, sort of in line with the expectations, uh, at any point in your early days at Hofstra Radio, could you ever have expected the the relationship, the product, the the experience that comes with working with the New York Islanders? Well, the New, New York Islanders are a perfect example of competition breeds excellence. When we got the Islanders in 2010, I said to Bruce, there is absolutely no question this has to be a New York City major market production or we will have an issue because the fans expect that. The fans expect a New York City major market quality product. And so I said to Bruce, we absolutely have to be at major market quality. So the voices of the students has to be at New York City quality. The production has to be at New York City quality. The play-by-play, I was not worried one bit about the play-by-play because we had Chris King. Chris King is a consummate pro. But but the things between the play-by-play, I was a little worried about in 2010 because you know, we had very young voices, very young voices. And I was not sure how an audience would perceive that in the breaks. And luckily, through the magic of Adobe Edition and uh, vocal enhancers and things like that, and and really solid writing and and doing things seven or eight or 11 times <laughs> over mm. and over again, uh, trying out different permutations of students to accomplish things, we were able to keep the product at a major market quality, so much so that in 2013, ESPN called the Islanders and said, we would like to broadcast your playoff game. And all the credit in the world to Michael Picker, Michael Picker picked up the phone and called me from the Islanders and said, I need you to come to my office right now. So I drove over to the Coliseum. I had absolutely no idea. I thought he was going to yell at me. I, we go downstairs. I go into his office. It's just me and him and and uh, Kimber Auerbach from the Islanders. He goes, he goes, ESPN wants to broadcast our games. And I told them, you're our production person and you're going to have to produce it and it will be on ESPN. And I'm sitting in the office. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> the student's work will be on the number one ESPN station in the country. And I said to myself, oh my God, this is incredible. And then ESPN aired the game. The ESPN program director at the time wrote us an email uh, and said, you know, this is, it sounds professional. So then the very next day, WFAN called Mike Picker and Mike Picker said, oh, you need to come back to my office, John. So I come mm-hmm. back and he says, Mark Chernoff's on the phone from WFAN and he wants to do it. And Mike says to him, well, Hofstra's our partner. They're going to, and Mark says, okay. So Mark called me in the car on the way home and we talked and Mark said, well, it sounded good on ESPN. And then we were on FAN. The ne- very next day we were on FAN, or it might've been a day later. But it, anyway, the first student produced game was on ESPN and the second one was on FAN. So in, within a couple of games, we were on the two biggest sports brands in the world. Mm-hmm. And both PD said, you know, it sounded really good. And then um, 
you know, years later, we would have an entire season on the fan. And now we've had a couple of seasons on ESPN and we've been on Salem radio in New York City. and We've been on WNYE radio and we've been on CBS 880 with Tim Sheld, who's been a great partner. And, you know, it's really wonderful. Um, this year we're on Salem radio 970 for a few games and we're on ESPN for the bulk of our games who are wonderful partners. You know, we've gotten to a place where the students now they hear the students from the year before and they competitively want to do as good, healthy competition. So things have been going well and we're very blessed to have the Islanders. Well, we're very blessed to have the Long Island Ducks, which we had a few seasons before the Islanders. We're blessed to have the Long Island Nets, which are owned by the Brooklyn Nets. And the newest professional sports team we produce and distribute is the New York Riptide uh, Box Lacrosse team. So now we have four professional sports teams that students produce quality content. The teams are happy. The fans are happy. And the fans are the hardest uh, to please because they want what they want. It's it's my favorite team. I don't want to lower the standards of the broadcast for my favorite team. So we're very fortunate. We're very blessed. The students have been able to propel their careers forward. So many students have been able to propel their careers forward because of the four professional sports teams. Um, it, it's a great talking point for any current WRHU staff member to say, I was involved in an Islander broadcast, even if you're going for a news job or a public relations job, how many students going to interact with a pro sports team when they're 17 to 21 years old? Hardly any. So it's really a great talking point for everyone. John, this has been so much fun listening to your stories of of working as the operations manager uh, for WRHU and, and all the interactions, the wonderful people that you've worked with, both the students and the alumni and the, and the faculty and the uh, professionals and residents. And I'm going to put you on the spot here, and maybe this isn't fair, but you started your first new job after 17 years. What are your expectations as the general manager of WRHU? Well, what I would like to do is grow the value of WRHU to the current students, to the alumni, to the uh, upper administration, the dean's office, to the uh, faculty, to the community. We just put a bunch of community volunteers, new community volunteers into the training class. The training class is over 80 people this year. Mm. 80 people. And the reason we did that was because of COVID in the last couple of years, we've been doing 25 to 30 person training classes. So this year, we had almost 300 applications. We easily could have put 140 people in the training class, easily based on talent and passion and wanting to be a member of the station. Unfortunately, the room only held 88 people. We have four people teaching the class plus me, so that brought it down to um, about 83. We have four community volunteers, and the rest are students from all over the globe. We have a student from India, a student from Mexico. We have students from all over the United States, Seattle, Washington, Texas, California, Chicago. Hofstra has really become a global university. It's really wonderful. Um, so my expectations are to grow the value of WRHU for the future generations, for the current uh, stakeholders. And I got to give a big shout out to Andy Gladding, our chief engineer, because Andy, like myself, is always looking out for new partnerships and new opportunities for students. So Andy came to me about a year ago and said, hey, 
there's this organization called the Society of Broadcast Engineers, mm-hmm. and I think we should work with them and, and be like an unofficial official partner. So we we started to do events with them, and we enrolled some students in the Society of Broadcast Engineers, and it has been such a wonderful, blossoming relationship. Just this past weekend, um, a week ago actually, we brought the Next Best Thing Tech Tour. So people from the Society of Broadcast Engineers brought all this really cool tech gear to Hofstra. We did it in the parking lot outside, had about 100 students come, and it was just wonderful. All these first-class vendors showing off you know, all this cool technology, people from Angry Audio and from Sprite Communication and from ENCO and all these different places. The future for WRHU is looking for partnerships like the Society of Broadcast Engineers. Andy does this thing called Tech Thursday, Mm -hmm. and each Thursday he brings a person from the field of technology. We had Mark Silverman from NBC Sports. We've had um, the chief engineer of Hot 97. We've had all these different wonderful guest speakers come and be a part of Tech Thursday. So as we grow the radio station forward, we need to look at where are the jobs that students are going to get in five or 10 years? What are the industries that are going to grow? How can the radio station be used to do that? One of the dirty little secrets about WRHU, which I've always said is we do grow careers in radio for people who want careers in radio, like Andrew Sakura, for example, did our top 40 show here. Now he's a top 40 morning man. Joe Sibilia, Joe Sibilia did our morning show here. He's now a producer of the Joe Piscopo show for Salem 970. There are definitely examples of people who wanted careers in radio who come through Radio House University. But one of the most important things as general manager is to show students how they can use the radio station to further their careers in other areas. For example, sometimes we get students who want to be lawyers. To be a lawyer, you need to be able to speak publicly. You need to be in front of a courtroom. You need to be able to sway an audience. You need to be able to inform and entertain. Gee, where can I learn how to inform and entertain? (laughs) Radio. A lawyer uses their voice. So we've had students who do our morning show, our women's topic talk show, who host election night, who go down the path of law. So I show a student who's a law student. Right now, the medical school is booming. So we have about 11 or 12 students from the medical school who work on a podcast that we produce here at WRHU. It's a Northwell School of Medicine podcast, Zucker School of Medicine podcast hosted by Dr. Ira Nash. The students engineer it, they edit it, they help come up with ideas for the show. So the radio station is now helping them. So when those students, they're undergrad pre-med people, when they apply for medical school, everybody takes the same tests. Everybody has more or less the same SAT scores. Everybody has more or less the same internships. Wait a minute. You produced 300 episodes of Well Said, the podcast with Dr. Ira Nash. Mm -hmm. Now you're different and better. I always tell the students, you're not in the journalism business. You're not in the TV business. You're not in the radio business. You're not in the English business. You're not in the school of education business. When you're in college, you're in the sales business and you're getting talking points. So when you graduate, you can sell yourself in a good way for a job. And so the radio station provides talking points. We had a really big success story recently. Many, many times, many, many years, we've had people who want to be in the music business and they host music shows. They play music and they do mic breaks as music disc jockeys. And that's Mm -hmm. perfectly fine. So I said to the students a couple of years ago, I said, you really need to do a half hour talk show about music and interview people who can hire you. So Emma and uh, Katie Egan 
Both of them did this show. We created it called Music Biz Buzz. Uh, Katie came up with the name. It was my idea. Half hour, one host, student, one interviewee that you're interviewing, and that would be someone who can hire you. Both of those students got internships for the show, through the show, and they also got jobs, full-time jobs in the music business, partially due to hosting the show. Mm. So another example of the radio station being used PR majors, PR majors who do sports communications are interacting with the sports information directors, the PR arm of athletics. They're interning with the Islanders or with the Nets or with the Ducks or with the Riptide. You're a PR major and you're using the radio station to get a PR internship with a sports team. And as a play-by-play guy for Hofstra Sports, you're interacting with all the sports information directors. So when you go for that interview for that PR agency, you've had so much interaction. You know the process of credentialing. You know how to do an event. You know how to do a scrum. You know how to do a press junket. So it really is showing the radio station's value to the current students of all majors. And it also makes the station more interesting for the listeners when we have a nice, diverse student body with diverse interests. It makes it interesting for the students because they learn from one another. And it really builds a robust community of people helping people, which is what I love so much about working here. It's just watching everyone help each other, which they do often. And I just love it. Amen. Amen. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing your stories and your vision for the station. And thank you for all your years of service and hard work and and the mentoring. Uh, It's really wonderful. And we wish you uh, much success and happiness in your new role as general manager of WRHU. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I just want to give my email address. If any alum would like to reach out, say hi, reconnect, if they'd like a tour, My email address is john, J-O-H-N dot T, like Thomas, dot M-U-L-L-E-N at Hofstra dot E-D-U. So you can uh, email me at john dot T dot Mullen at Hofstra dot E-D-U, john dot T dot Mullen at Hofstra dot E-D-U, and give me a day or two and I'll get back to you. But uh, we love hearing from alumni. We love putting what we call alumni accomplishments on our webpage. So if you go to WRHU.org, it'll say alumni accomplishments. Obviously, people change jobs, so sometimes they're not totally up to date. But the reason we use the word accomplishment means that at a point in time, that alumni achieved that job. So that's why we call them uh, alumni accomplishments, because it's just impossible. I think we have like three or 400 alumni on that list. We'd have to go through it every single day because people get promoted, people change careers. It's crazy. But anyway, reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you. And uh, thanks so much. I am really proud of these podcasts. I think they serve an incredible value to connecting people. And it's really wonderful to hear all the stories and all of the uh, interesting people that are on the podcast throughout the decades. It's really wonderful.